This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're new, you can get new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to receive notifications. Now, this week, we're digging into the history of female archaeologists and learning about some of the women who literally and figuratively broke new ground. But before we meet our pioneers of the past, let's first meet our guests. I'm Susan Greeney. I'm Senior Properties Historian based in Bristol. I'm Frances McIntosh and I'm the Collections Curator for Hadrian's Wall and North East. Susan, let's start off with our first groundbreaking female archaeologist. She's a woman whose work was eventually recognised by the monarch and her name was Maud Cunnington. So what can you tell us about Maud's early life? So Maud was born to a family in Wales, in South Wales, a place called Britain Ferry, and she was the daughter of a doctor. Her father ran a private asylum there. So she had, a, I think, about four siblings, and they all had a lot of connections to Wiltshire. So her mother came from a Wiltshire family based in Devizes, and her grandfather actually lived in Devizes Castle. So although she grew up in, in Wales, she had a lot of connections to Wiltshire. She was basically educated at Cheltenham Ladies College, And it seems that the whole family was quite interested in history. Her sister went on to become a historian and her brother became an expert on the Vikings and in particular Viking sagas. So I think she had an early interest in in history and architecture and archaeology. So that's obviously how she started to gradually get into archaeology. Did she do any formal study as well? No, she didn't. She was born in the period when it was very, very rare for women to go to university. And although it was possible for women to study archaeology at university at that time, it was incredibly rare. And she's one of many, many people who did not have formal university training. She was basically trained in the field through local archaeological societies and excavations taking place through field clubs and things. And it was really the link for her came when she got married. So she met her husband through the Devizes Wiltshire Connections and they got married when she was 20 years old in 1889. And she married Edward Benjamin Howard Cunnington known as Ben. And he was from the well-known Cunnington family who had a kind of pedigree of being interested in archaeology. His great-grandfather was William Cunnington, who was the famous antiquarian who'd excavated many barrows in, in the Wiltshire countryside. And so he sort of became honorary curator of Wiltshire Museum. And that sounds a bit strange for us to think that a curator could be an honorary post, but it was for the Cunnington family. So, so he had a big role in running Wiltshire Museum, which is in Devizes, And together, really, over the next 50 years, they sort of worked in partnership to excavate many, many sites across Wiltshire. And it's worth mentioning as well, I think, from the geographical perspective, that for people who perhaps don't know Wiltshire, it is where Stonehenge is located. Stonehenge is in southwest Wiltshire. Devizes is probably about half an hour drive north of there, isn't it? Something like that? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So we've got a lot of uh, prehistoric and ancient monuments, stone circles, barrows, these sorts of things, including the jewel in the crown, Stonehenge, in this county. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there's absolutely the county stocked full of archaeological sites, hill forts and enclosures and timber monuments. And they were really excavating sites that they were interested in and sites where they thought that they could collect objects to be accessioned into the museum. That was one of the things they were trying to do was build up the collection of the museum. So they excavated Iron Age hill forts, they excavated Neolithic timber monuments, they excavated Bronze Age settlement, midden sites, a whole range of things from from different periods of prehistory. And they lived in Wiltshire then, I presume. So they were right next to their work, effectively. 
Yeah, that's right. They had a house on Long Street in Devizes, which is where the museum was located. Although I think they did travel quite widely. And I think she spent quite a lot of time with her family back in Wales, in South Wales as well. Yeah. You touched on some of the digs that they were sort of doing in the county. Could you give a list of key achievements from uh, Maud's excavations? She worked in partnership with Ben, although she really directed the excavations and she was the one that wrote them up and published them. So whenever you find any accounts of these excavations, it's it's her name that's on there. Um, so one of the most famous sites they excavated was a Woodhenge near Stonehenge, a timber monument, um, which they excavated in the late 1920s. They also excavated Manton Barrow, which is a Bronze Age barrow, which had amazing gold finds in it. And that was one of their first excavations. And they excavated at um, a couple of hill forts, Yarnbury and Oliver's Camp, both in, in Wiltshire. So they were kind of really breaking new ground in terms of the types of monuments that they were discovering, types of excavation they were doing, which was very meticulous and, and well recorded. And in particular, there's a site called All Canning's Cross that they excavated, which is in the Vale of Pusey sort of halfway between Avebury and Stonehenge. And that site is a, a late Bronze Age, early Iron Age midden site. So it's this enormous mound, absolutely stocked full of pottery and animal bones and ash and charcoal. And that was a brand new discovery that this type of site, and we now know that they, these large midden sites existed across many areas, but they were really the first to excavate that important site. And it became a sort of type site for that study of that period. And a midden is a, effectively a rubbish dump, isn't it? A historical yeah. rubbish dump. It's a rubbish dump, but in this in this case, it's a monumental rubbish dump. I mean, it's 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 almost like a monument in its own right, in that the, the soils are so black and the the earth mound builds up a bit like almost like a tell that the settlement and the occupation there is so intensive that and the feasting and everything. So they're a bit more than just you know rubbish dump out your back door sort of thing. Obviously, Maud and Ben worked together. You said that Maud was leading things. How did they fund their investigations, their their excavations? They were partly self-funded, so the couple were wealthy. They came from wealthy families and they had their own funds. I think they also used some of the funds from the museum and from the Wiltshire Archaeological and Natural History Society, which was the society that that set up and run the museum. As I said, one of the aims was to obtain collections. But really, they were very wealthy and they could really fund their own work and they could purchase some of the sites after they'd finished excavating them to make them accessible to the public. We talked about Woodhenge just there, but that was one of their key discoveries. Another one, I believe, was something called the Sanctuary. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a really similar site just near Avebury. It's on top of Overton Hill, which is just on the west side of the Avebury World Heritage Site. And again, it's a bit like Woodhenge and it's a concentric timber monument, but it also had two stone circles. So it's a sort of complex monument. And the Cunningtons excavated there in the year after they excavated at Woodhenge. So they were very similar sites. And actually, this site had been kind of lost. It had been recorded in the 18th century by William Stukeley, who'd drawn a picture of it. But the Cunningtons worked out where it was and rediscovered its location. And both Woodhenge and the Sanctuary, they purchased the land where these monuments stood, quite small little fields, partly to preserve the sites, to remove them from agriculture, but also to make them publicly accessible. So they gave both of the sites to the nation, which is how English Heritage has them in guardianship today. And one of the innovative things that they did with those sites was mark them out for the public to see. So they used concrete posts to mark the post holes and the stone holes that they'd excavated. And those posts can still be seen on the sites today. And they help visitors understand the layout of the site and what they discovered. What's interesting there then, Susan, is that in some respects, they were kind of this couple were kind of like the precursor to English heritage. They sort of saw the historical value in historic places and decided we're going to give this to the nation. 
That's right, yeah. And actually, Maud was very outward focused. She wrote several books, both specialist books on pottery, for example, but also she wrote a book called The Introduction to the Archaeology of Wiltshire, and she wrote a children's guidebook to Avebury. So she was very keen on making archaeology accessible to the wider public. She was quite a ahead-of-her-time type person, I suppose, sort of breaking new ground and creating history with every dig, in a way, with all these records and interpretations and analyses. Um, and yeah. In, and in 1948, she made history again by becoming the first female archaeologist to be honoured with a CBE by King George VI. So that was quite a groundbreaking thing as well, I suppose, for, for her at that time. Yeah, to have her contribution recognised like that was quite unusual. And I think that was partly because of the sort of academic progress that she'd made and her interpretations, but also the fact that she'd, she'd made so much impact on sort of public understanding. And it was a bit sad, really, because by 1948, she was quite ill. She suffered from ill health towards the end of her life and she had Alzheimer's as well. So we don't think she actually knew that she'd been given this honour, which was only shortly before she died. What other titles and positions did she hold? She was made an honorary fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland in 1931, which was, she was one of the very first women to be allowed to be a fellow. At this time, you have to remember that the main major societies were pretty much exclusively men. And it was quite unusual for women to be admitted to these kind of, you know, hallowed halls of academic discussion. And she was also elected president of the Wiltshire Archaeological and Natural History Society. So that's the society that was running the museum. And she was very active for many years in running both the museum and that society. So looking at her overall life then, what would be her legacy to the field of archaeology? Because she's, to me, sounds like one of the first. Yeah, I mean, she it wasn't very the first. I'm sure there are other archaeologists who were working in the 19th century, for example, but she was prolific and she was very well known. She knows she kind of dominated Wiltshire archaeology really during her lifetime. And she left behind, when she died, she left her money to the museum and she left it with the express wish that it would be used to employ a professional curator at the museum. And now that's quite interesting because her husband had been this honorary curator, but she realised that the museum actually needed somebody to be paid to be an expert in that role. And so that curatorship was created and there are still curators at Wiltshire Museum today. And a lot of her discussions and, you know, the excavations she did at Woodhenge, for example, were meticulous. She recorded every single object that was found in every single post hole so that quite recently, you know, archaeologists can go back to those records, go back to the archives and the objects that she excavated and do things like radiocarbon dating based on her records, which are so good. You can still, you know, reunite where objects came from and which context they were from and things. So that's really important in understanding those sites. She did have some interpretations, which have kind of now been overturned. She was adamant that Stonehenge was Bronze Age, for example, for a long time. And she sort of had some quite kind of, I guess she's stuck in her ways quite a lot towards the <laughs> end of her life when there were new interpretations. But she was really important in opening up archaeology in Wiltshire and really important in focusing archaeology on, on the hill forts and the settlement sites and these kind of non-funerary monumental sites, which hadn't really been investigated before. Well, thank you, Susan. Let's move on to our next groundbreaking female archaeologist. We'll talk now about Aileen Fox. She was born in 1907 and died at the age of 98 in 2005. How did Aileen become involved in archaeology, Francis? Well, like Maud, Aileen was born into a wealthy family. She grew up in London and Surrey and it seems that travels with her family, particularly her father, on the continent and visiting sites is what sparked her interest really in the past. She did go to university. She read English at Newnham College in Cambridge, although 
in order to get her parents to agree to allow her to sit the entrance exams, she had to agree to go to the presentation at Buckingham Palace. So she was presented to the Queen as a, a young woman. So although she went to university, she didn't study archaeology. So she seems to have been interested in, you know, the past and archaeology from an early age, but for some reason she chose to study English. So although unlike Maud, she did get to go to university, she didn't have that formal training mm. at a degree level in archaeology. How difficult was it for Aileen to pursue her interests in academia then? Well, as I said, her parents weren't very keen for her to go to university, and in particular her father. He really didn't want her to become an academic or you know, a blue stocking, as he says, but he did seem to really encourage her interest in archaeology. So I think they wanted her to do something she enjoyed, but being upper class, they didn't seem to want her to become you know, an academic. They wanted her to stay within her kind of class and her group. I see. But like Maud Cunnington before her, Aileen also had access to history through marriage. Can you tell us a bit more about that? She married her husband in 1933, but she was actually had met him through archaeology. So it's probably worth kind of stepping back a few years. So when she finished her degree in 1929, that degree in English, she basically didn't know what to do in her own words and through family introductions ended up spending a season at Richborough Roman Fort with Bush Fox. And that's um, in Kent, isn't it? That's in Kent, yeah. So the landing site, supposedly, of the Romans when they arrived in Britain, a really important site. And she started there working on the finds and seemed to excel and enjoy it. And so she was recommended by Bush Fox to go to the British School in Rome over winter to learn more about Romans and about archaeology, because obviously she hadn't done that at university. And I think that's quite indicative of you know where she's come from, that she could just go and spend six months in Rome over the winter to learn these things. And then next year, she went back to Richborough as a paid assistant. And that seems to have cemented her decision to become an archaeologist and to stay in archaeology. So she went and worked on other excavations as a volunteer, so to learn how to be an archaeologist. And it was actually on a holiday that she met her husband, Cyril Fox, who was the director of the National Museums of Wales. And those two together did a huge amount of work, both together and separately, in Wales and then later on when they moved they were a, a great team. Yes and as you mentioned they've done some digs in Wales which uh, is part of their uh, sort of legacy really but they also did work in England and similarly to Maud Cunnington before her Aileen was working in the southwest region in England. Whereabouts were her excavations? So Aileen, her first excavation that she led was in Caerleon in Wales which is a Roman fort and that brought her to the attention of other archaeologists in Britain. And so she did excavations in Exeter. And then later when they moved there to around sites in Dartmoor and other places in Devon. So further west than Maud, but similar to Maud, lots of prehistoric sites. She did creep into the Roman period. So when she worked in Exeter on this rescue project, which was to investigate Roman Exeter, um, which had been revealed by all the bomb damage in the war. She did three years there that was quite well, it was quite groundbreaking because Roman Exeter had never really been accessible before because it's on the same site as modern Exeter. Mm. But she did a huge amount of work on prehistoric sites, recording them and excavating them, particularly across Dartmoor. And Exeter was very important for her career as well because I believe she had a position there at the university. That's right. So when they she was invited to move to Exeter 
as a lecturer in 1947 in Exeter. And at that time, it wasn't a university. It was a college uh, linked to London. And so she was a lecturer in archaeology, but within the history department. And she was the first archaeologist there, both in the university, but there's also no archaeologist in the museums or in the county, really. So she was pioneering in that way, bringing archaeology to the area in a professional manner. There were a couple of societies who were pretty active, but she really kick-started a lot of work in Exeter. How else then, Francis, did Aileen Fox try to push the boundaries of archaeology while working in Exeter? So she kind of had two main things, really. One goal that she had all the way through her 20-plus year career in Exeter was to try to get an archaeology department founded in the university. It didn't quite happen within her tenure, but she definitely sowed the seeds and many of the students that she taught and lecturers she worked with founded the archaeology department not long after she left and they credit her with helping with that. On the other side, so outside of teaching, she was the Ordnance Survey County Correspondent for Devon, which involved taking care of and keeping an eye of any scheduled ancient monuments in the area. And she realised with that role how poorly recorded and understood a lot of these monuments were, particularly lots of the upland, small prehistoric settlements and hill forts and things. And so with Cyril, her husband, she visited and recorded huge numbers of these, updating all the maps and the records. So really adding hugely to the knowledge of the area, particularly in the prehistoric period. So it wasn't just her excavations, which were really important, but it was also what we would call field survey and recording that was key. And Cyril was really important for that because she admits in her autobiography she's not a planner or an illustrator and that was one of Cyril's real strengths and skills so they worked really well together on that. What were her solo significant achievements because obviously they were a kind of a team? Some of her real solo achievements were she did five years of excavations on some of the prehistoric settlements on Dartmoor which is the first work that had been done and really helped to understand the character of those settlements and then she did a wider study of hill slope forts in Devon and Cornwall which is still used today and she then went back to her Roman roots and started to try to understand where the Romans had been and their impact they'd had in the southwest which was very little understood at the time. And from South Wales to southwest England to another part of the world, uh, she also had experience of working about 11,000 miles away on archaeological sites from an entirely different culture. So where did she go and what did she do? Well, so when she retired in 1973 from Exeter, she was invited to go to Auckland in New Zealand. She was invited to be a guest lecturer for one year at the university there. She ended up staying overall for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Most people, once they retire, want to have a little bit of a a quiet time, but but not Aileen. She found that the archaeology in New Zealand in the 70s was much more as it was when she first started in the 30s. It was a much smaller group of people. The legislation in terms of protecting and understanding the monuments was not at the level it was in Britain. So she really found a niche for herself or a home for herself and felt she could be useful. So she did quite a lot of similar work to that that she'd done in Britain. She worked on lots of Maori sites, which are called PAA, P-A-A, which have quite a lot of similarities with the British hill fort she'd been working on. And she did a huge amount of survey work because, again, like when she'd started in Devon and Dartmoor, there was a real lack of understanding and even knowledge of where these sites were. 
So she kind of went back and did the same thing, but in, in New Zealand. So she was taking her knowledge from the UK and seeding it in New Zealand where perhaps they weren't as far developed in terms of archaeological expertise and processes and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you might think from that, oh gosh, they would, you know, not like this English, you know, invader coming to tell them how to do things. But she seems to have been extremely well liked. She came back as a volunteer. Five of those years where she was there, she was a volunteer and she worked with the societies. And her friends and colleagues published a feshrift for her when she left. So uh, an edited volume of, you know, celebrating the work that she was involved with. And I think really it's quite remarkable that she spent 10 years dedicating her time after already a very full career. Yeah that's a really important legacy I think to leave to archaeology to come back as a volunteer when you've sort of climbed the ranks. What else would you say is part of her legacy for Aileen Fox? So I think you know there's a work in New Zealand but really it's her work in Exeter so there is now an archaeology department in the university which really started with her and the field unit who excavated lots of Roman Exeter after her you know, and other periods, really were able to use her framework for understanding Roman Exeter to fill in more of the gaps as they dug more. Okay, well thank you Francis for explaining the life and times and achievements of Aileen Fox. We move back to Susan now to talk about another person, our third groundbreaking female archaeologist. Now if you've heard episode 86, which is another archaeology episode, which was on Sir Mortimer Wheeler, you should recognise this next name. So, Susan, who are we talking about? And we're going to focus on Tessa Verney Wheeler, who was married to Mortimer Wheeler, but was a really important archaeologist in her own right. And in terms of birth dates, Tessa Verney Wheeler came between Maud Cunnington and Aileen Fox. She was born in 1893. She died, though, at the age of 43 in 1936 in London, but she was originally from South Africa, I believe? Yes, she was born in South Africa, in Johannesburg. And like Maud, she was born to a doctor and his wife, John Verney. But the family moved to London when uh, she was a very small child. So actually, she was educated in London. And I suspect she would have probably thought of herself as more British than South African. And unlike Aileen Fox, who we just talked about, Tessa Verney Wheeler was encouraged to study by her family. So how did she get into archaeology? That's right. She went to university and she studied history at UCL. As we were saying before, it was quite rare to have you know, pure archaeology degrees. It was normally part of history or classics departments. So she studied between 1911 and 1914 in London. Um, and that's where she met her husband, Mortimer Wheeler, when they were students there together. And they got married in 1914, shortly before he went off to serve in the military in the First World War. Another really weird parallel is that Tessa's husband, Mortimer, became director of the National Museum of Wales and Aileen Fox's husband, who we just spoke about, also held that position. (laughs) So what was um, Tessa's position at the National Museum of Wales when she was working there? So in 1920, when he returned from the war, Mortimer Wheeler applied for and was successful in obtaining the post of director of the National Museum of Wales. And so the couple moved to Cardiff. It's not unusual really to find these connections because archaeology was quite a small world really at that time, as it still is a bit today. And Tessa took up the post of keeper of archaeology at the museum. So she took on a kind of curator role there. 
And at the time, the museum was really in its infancy. So the Wheelers were instrumental in, in setting this museum in the right foot. They did a huge amount of fundraising and got all kinds of dignitaries and politicians in Cardiff to support the foundation of this new proper museum in, in the centre of Cardiff. And so I suspect she was very important in organising the archaeology collections of the museum and acting as curator for the museum during their time there. But she also got down on her hands and knees and did a bit of digging as well. Being based in Cardiff in the early to mid-1920s, they did some excavations. What did they work on together? Yeah, so the Wheelers, every summer basically, at least, were excavating major sites. And then during the winters, they would kind of spend their evenings writing up and, and publishing their reports. So because they were based in Cardiff, they were particularly interested in Roman sites. And they excavated at um, Roman Fort just on the outskirts of Carnarvon, which was known as Siguntium. And they also excavated a hill fort in the Black Mountains. And they were really a, a kind of work together as a team. So Tessa would organise the excavations and project manage the whole thing, record all of the finds. And Mortimer did a lot of the interpretation and a lot of the kind of publicity and persuading people and talking to visitors and things. Now, they only lived in Cardiff for a short time because Mortimer Wheeler took up a new post in London. And the year that he left, they had already planned to do some excavations at Carleon, which we've already heard mentioned today. So this is a Roman fort and amphitheatre near Newport in South Wales. Tessa actually directed those excavations after Mortimer had left for London. So she really directed and, and led on the excavations there for a couple of years before she also then moved to London. Regarding the work that they did do in South Wales particularly, how are they breaking new ground in the way that they did their investigations? They were trying to develop much more accurate techniques for excavation itself. So they were aware of the importance of stratigraphy. So that's the way that the layers of archaeological deposits form and get altered over time. And they developed a method based on a grid system of trenches, which became known as the Wheeler-Kenyon method because of Kathleen Kenyon, another archaeologist, later on kind of refined the model. But basically it involved digging small trenches across a grid but and leaving bulks or leaving upright sections of non-excavated material between each area. And this was so that you could dig down, but you could also see in section in the vertical sides of each trench, what was happening to these complicated layers and contexts that they were digging through. So they were really drawing on the work of a much earlier archaeologist, General Pitt Rivers, who had kind of set out some of these methods. And this was a really important technique and really advanced the way that archaeology was being done in Britain at that time. And they were also very innovative in the fact that they were really rapid in publishing their excavations very thoroughly and very swiftly. And they also cultivated the public interest in these sites. So they were talking to the media, they were getting newspapers to write up the discoveries, they welcomed visitors to sites, they sold postcards and souvenirs and things. So they were very public facing in the work that they were doing as well. So in some respects, um, before Tony Robinson and the time team, they were the original time team in a way. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's almost, yeah. And, and actually, they were really pioneering in that respect. Yeah. Mm. We've talked about uh, Maud Cunnington, our first lady's links to Wiltshire, and then Aileen Fox's research projects in Devon. But where else in England did Tessa Verney Wheeler carry out her excavations? She was mainly working in southern England. So after the couple had moved to London more permanently, they excavated at Lydney Park in Gloucestershire on the Severn Valley, which is a Roman villa site. They also excavated at St Albans at Verulaneum, which is the Roman site there in, in Hertfordshire, so not far outside London. And they led, most famously, I guess, major excavations at Maiden Castle in Dorset between 1934 and 1937. And she was pretty adept at these Roman investigations, wasn't she? Yeah, so the Wheelers were really interested in 
the late Iron Age and, and early Roman period. And in particular, they were interested in the Roman invasion and interested in, in Roman lifestyles and living in, in southern England. So she excavated many, many Roman sites and she was particularly adept at excavating and recording Roman mosaics. So she really pioneered the way that mosaics were excavated and also lifted for preservation in museums. What were some of her other personal achievements in terms of having young students along with her nurturing the next generation? Yeah, so she was obviously a really stimulating teacher and mentor and many, many archaeologists were trained by her. On all of these excavations, she was constantly training younger archaeologists. She would lead informal classes in the evening after excavations had finished in her hotel room, telling the students how to conserve objects, how to record things. And one of her major achievements was the foundation of the Institute of Archaeology at University College London, which she and Mortimer spent many, many years setting up and trying to fund. And that institute still exists today. It trains many, many hundreds of students each year. And she was a lecturer and a teacher there. But obviously she was held in great affection by the young archaeologists, many, many archaeologists, for example, Peggy Piggott, who people might find familiar from the dig. You know, she was trained by Tessa and she recalls how wonderful a teacher she was. And University College London, UCL, was her alma mater. That's where it all started for her. That's right. Yeah. So she came sort of full circle in a way. That's a great legacy to leave for the place that gave you your start as well. Now, we we touched on the fact that uh, she worked with Mortimer, her husband. Were they quite a good team? Were they functional? Yeah, they worked very well together as a team, particularly in the early years of their marriage. They seem to have worked as a brilliant archaeological team in, in the ways that they used their kind of individual skills in partnership. But Mortimer was a rather confident and overbearing personality and he courted publicity. He, you know, he was named television personality of the year. He was very much in the public eye, whereas Tessa was much more in the background. But that's actually because she was the one doing the vast amounts of work, you know, the archaeology and everything. So she did a huge amount of the practical teaching, the technical work, the publications. And actually, she, she was in the press a bit, but, but it was really Mortimer that took the lead on the sort of publicity side. And so he's often overshadowed her contributions. And later in, in their marriage, Mortimer was openly unfaithful to her. And he was, he was known as a bit of a, a womanizer. And I think that must have been very hard for her. They stayed married, but I think that was a difficult time in her life. And really sadly, she, she died at the very young age of 43. She'd had a bit of ill health, but she'd gone in for a minor operation and had died rather suddenly. Mortimer was actually traveling at the time. And he, he learned of her death a couple of weeks later by letter when he was on train across Europe. And at that time, they were mid-excavating at Maiden Castle. So they were in the middle of this enormous big project. And at the beginning of Mortimer Wheeler's Maiden Castle monograph, which he then spends the next few years writing up all of their excavations, he, he writes this rather lovely dedication to Tessa and says that this report is I mean, by far the poorer because it hasn't had her input and, ha and hasn't had her expertise. So he was grieving for her, certainly, when she died. Wow. Okay. So she was unable to leave that last lasting legacy by writing up those uh, reports from that location. But what should Tessa Vernie Wheeler be remembered for, would you say? I think really her legacy is the teaching and the setting up of the Institute at University College London. She really pioneered, you know, structured, proper teaching of archaeology students in techniques and methods of excavation. And that's really set the course for how archaeology has been taught in universities ever since. And so, you know, she was really, really 
important in that respect. If you go to the Institute of Archaeology, there is a plaque to her in the entrance hall, which is dedicated to her memory. So I think it's her teaching and her, her skills in excavation and passing that on to the next generation that's really important. Speaking about uh, another in the generation of groundbreaking female archaeologists, we next move on to Grace Simpson and we talk to you again, Francis. We're talking about our fourth and final pioneering female archaeologist here. She lived until the age of 86. She was born in 1920 and died in 2007. Unlike the other people we've talked about so far, Grace followed in her father's footsteps, though. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. People who know about the study of Hadrian's Wall will probably have heard of F.G. Simpson, Frank Gerald Simpson, who was really instrumental in the early 1900s in the beginning of the scientific excavation and study of Hadrian's Wall. He was a trained draftsman, so carried out some very meticulous excavations with great recording and plans. And Grace really wanted to follow in her father's footsteps, it seems, from the career that she chose. When did she start her official training and where? So she was a bit delayed in her training, mainly by the Second World War. She trained as a nurse in the Second World War, but she went to study at the Institute of Archaeology, founded by Tessa and Mortimer Wheeler. And it's quite nice. And she's said to friends, and um, this is written in her obituary, that she says, as soon as I heard that courses were about to restart, I hurried to London, was interviewed, paid a fee of two guineas and I was in. And she was very excited about that. And she gained a diploma in European archaeology while she was at the Institute. What periods of history was Grace mostly interested in? Now, she was pretty much solely interested in the Romans, not just on Hadrian's Wall, but more widely. And her real specialism and what she's known for most is Roman pottery and a specific type called Samian ware. Right. Okay. So she'd be someone who you'd love to pick the brains of, basically, if she were still with us today, because you're you're quite into your your Roman period, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. And her work on Samian ware is still seen as really the founding study of that type of pottery. Did she teach as well? She did a little bit of teaching. She taught a little bit at Oxford, where she got her doctorate in 1960. And she was invited to do two years as a visiting fellow at Howard Comfort's Haverford College in Pennsylvania in America. But teaching wasn't kind of her main thing. What took up a lot of her time was her work on pottery. She wrote the reports on the Samian pottery. So the red pottery people see in museums, it often people think it looks a bit like flower pots. It was ubiquitous. It's found all across the Roman Empire. But she wrote over 80 reports on the Samian pottery from excavations all over Britain and more widely. Was that one of her key areas of study then, particularly Roman pottery, the Samian ware? Yeah, the Samian ware. So she, interestingly though, her PhD wasn't on that. Her PhD another kind of link back to some of the others, her PhD was on Wales and it was on the reassessment of Wales and the Southern Pennines in the second century. So although most of her work that she's known for is pottery, she did kind of deviate for her PhD. But yeah, her pottery work is what she's most known for. So Samian ware is stamped often with the maker's name. And one of the kind of things that people do is take rubbings of that stamp so that they've got a record of it. And she travelled across Europe to visit museum collections in France and in Germany to learn more about this pottery and her archive of all this research. When she 
retired due to ill health, she gave it to colleagues and they use the archive and it's still useful. So it's what she's known for. One of the collaborative things that she did was she helped to found something called the, and I will pronounce this wrong and I apologise to all the pottery specialists out there. She helped to found an organisation called the Rei Critarii Romani Fautores, which in Latin means the people who care about Roman pottery. And it's an international society dedicated to the study of Roman pottery. And it was founded in 1957. And they meet biannually to discuss all sorts of types of Roman pottery, sort of production, etc. And she was a real key member in starting that society up, which still goes today. What about her other legacies? You've listed a few there already, but yeah. are there any others that uh, you would sort of dig out? Well, yes. Yeah, so personally, with my work at English Heritage, one of the sites that I'm involved in is Chester's Fort, which has the Clayton Collection in its museum. And that's a collection of material all excavated from Hadrian's Wall in the 19th century by John Clayton. And there's lots of information on our website about that. But she was the honorary curator of that collection for over 20 years, from 1950 to 1972. And so similar to Maud, who's mentioned earlier, being an honorary curator in Devizes, she did this job unpaid. And it's also where I came across her first because we have her archive in our collections from her time there. And I think it's always a tricky balance when you're an honorary, in an honorary position, you're not paid to do something. Grace threw herself into anything that she was doing and was extremely passionate about it. But she was obviously restricted because it wasn't a paid role. And she also despite being this honorary creator of a collection on Hadrian's Wall, she was living in Oxford for quite a large part of the time. So it was a bit tricky. But she was quite a passionate woman, wasn't she? Uh, I think, wasn't she quite strong in her views about certain aspects of Hadrian's Wall as well? She was, she was very strong in her views. She was extremely, extremely passionate. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're extremely passionate, your diplomacy may not always come out. And one area where she did really struggle was her father, F.G. Simpson, who we discussed before, died with quite a lot of his work unpublished. He suffered mental health issues and she published his work in a book in 1976. Some archaeologists, particularly someone called Charles Daniels, were very critical because they thought that she had published his book almost as a to idolise her father rather than as a work of archaeological research, which it was because, you know, F.G. Simpson's work was extremely good. But because she was so passionate in her defence of her father, sometimes that got in the way of actually the archaeology and the research. And like her father, you know, Grace and F.G. both did some great work, but it's sometimes overshadowed by personality. I can understand that from a familial aspect, you're probably quite defensive about your parents' particular work, especially if they gave you your start in your chosen career. So I can sort of see how those um, things developed and why that criticism was forthcoming. Yeah, and I also think it was difficult, and occasionally it can still be difficult to be a woman in a man's world. And Hadrian's Wall studies very much were dominated by men. And um, in the archive, we have this lovely note, or you know, whichever we want to look at it, that Grace has written to herself about a meeting which didn't go well uh, in regards to the museum. And she says, I was not rude at the meeting, but I was very firm. And when a woman is firm, then often men imagine that she's being rude. And knowing of Grace, she could well have been erring on the side of rudeness. But I think also there is some truth to that statement that as often one of the only women involved in the wall, there is that preconception and women and men are viewed differently, I think, in the, the way they work. Yes, I think that's 
Absolutely true. <laughs> um, we always agree, though, all, all three of us, don't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, you know, obviously, that was a long time ago. Yes. Well, as you've been hearing, we've been exploring the work and legacy of four groundbreaking female archaeologists whose work mostly spans the 20th century there. Now, Susan, one of the common themes that Francis just picked up on there is that of strong or difficult women. So what do these descriptions tell us about these women and the times they lived in? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been really nicely summarised by that note Francis has just read out. Some of these women we've been talking about were described as difficult or strong-willed, and they didn't necessarily get on with everybody. Maud Cunnington in particular was intensely shy and she could come across very abrupt and very difficult. And I'm sure she was actively unpleasant at times. She certainly fell out in a big way with Alexander Keeler, who was excavating at Avebury at the time that she was working at sites like the sanctuary. And they very clearly did not get on, um, had quite differences of opinion. But she also clearly felt some prejudice against her as a woman in the same way as Grace. So she wrote a letter when Peggy Piggott was about to study archaeology, when she was still Peggy Legg, which was her maiden name. And she told her not to become an archaeologist because she said it was far too difficult for a woman. So she, you know, she was working again in a, in a male-dominated world. So I think all of the women we've talked about will have experienced sexism and will have experienced being you know, unusual in a male-dominated world. Although we should say that actually the 1930s and 40s were kind of a peak period for women in archaeology. There were actually quite a lot of women working in university departments, working as lecturers, working as active researchers in the field. And it was really in 1960s sort of and 70s that actually it became a lot less equal and, that, and it really did become a properly male-dominated world. So yeah, it's an interesting lens to look at the history of archaeology and look at these relationships and differences and, and how that comes through. Yes, we've also explored um, some marital and familial connections, which no doubt helped these female archaeologists pursue their interests. So was archaeology a pretty niche pastime and then profession eventually in the early days? Yeah, so archaeology and the antiquarian societies, it was a very much a small world. What's really interesting is Aileen Fox wrote an autobiography and lots and lots of the names that she mentions are people that knew Maud or she mentions the Wheelers and you can see how the kind of web of just a few people linked everyone else. You know, Aileen basically ended up with an archaeological career because a family member knew Bush Fox who gave her an, you know, a chance to excavate at Richborough and I think in some ways that made it easier. It's a smaller world so you can make the connections and get to meet people but it also can make it harder because if you fall out with somebody or you don't get on then it can be harder to move forwards. So that is just, difficult. Just on that yeah. note, it's this, these networks of these relationships between professionals and, and archaeologists at the time are really interesting. There's a brilliant project that's just started called Beyond Notability, which is um, a big project to kind of explore these networks through the histories of women, particularly through the Society of Antiquaries of London and the Royal Archaeological Institute, but sort of building a database of all of these networks and relationships and highlighting the contributions of women to archaeology. So it's an area of active research, which is really interesting. Francis has obviously just mentioned there that some women would have encountered each other. They might not have liked each other. They might not have liked some of the men. But did Aileen, Tessa, Grace and Maud encounter one another during their lives? Was there any crossover? Aileen mentions lots and lots of people, some of the names who've come up here. But what she does mention is that she doesn't meet Tessa Verney Wheeler. So she knows of Tessa, but she doesn't meet Tessa because Tessa was too busy to come visit Aileen's site because she was excavating at Maiden Castle. So 
although often they were maybe once or twice removed, it all depended on what you were working on and if people had a chance to travel around and visit sites, because that's where it seems to have been, conferences and sites that they met. Very interesting. Okay. It also sounds like access to archaeology was pretty difficult. Is that true? Was it a sort of middle to upper, upper class pursuit? Yeah, I mean, money definitely mattered in your ability to take part in archaeology, particularly in the in sort of the first half of the 20th century. You had to have money and independent means in order to go and study at university. You had to really have money, you know, from a family background to be able to pursue these kind of interests. In in some ways, it, for many people, it was a hobby. So yeah, it was difficult for women to study archaeology and it was difficult for people to get professions in archaeology. And you can see that all four women not so much Grace, but certainly Maud and the others were from wealthy backgrounds and also married people who were also interested and active in archaeology. And by the time we get to Grace Simpson, who was born in 1920, uh, died in 2007, she's very much 20th century. She pursued her passion, mainly thanks to her father, but also in the most direct way possible through training and degrees. So that says a lot about how women's job roles changed after the Second World War. Yeah, so, so she goes to the Institute of Archaeology, which, you know, Tessa has helped to found. So she's one of the first people who goes through and, and studies there properly. So you can see the legacy. That's the case for many, many archaeologists being trained at that time. So it's part of the professionalisation of archaeology at that time. So university departments get set up properly. People are, t you know, teaching proper degree programmes. There is more available positions as curators and, and archaeologists more generally, not in terms of what we have now with kind of huge numbers of people working in commercial archaeology. Yeah, so really, there was much more gender equality in terms of being able to study archaeology. I would say that there was still quite a difficult barriers for women being able to kind of progress in their careers and become full lecturers and, and professors in archaeology. And that's really stayed until now, to be honest. So in the 1950s and 60s, it was particularly common for people to, to marry as teenagers, for women to have a role in the home. You know, it was very unusual for women to have their own independent careers anyway, and an archaeology reflects that. What do Maud, Aileen Fox, Tessa Verney Wheeler and Grace Simpson leave behind collectively, would you say, for women entering the field of archaeology today? I think they show that if you have an interest and you have, you know, the ability, you can do some amazing archaeology and you can publish that and you can enlighten future generations. Um, you know, all of them published work that has had far-reaching implications for our understanding of their various periods and their various regions. And they've shown that even if a field is very male-dominated, women can make a difference and can do some groundbreaking work. And why is it important to highlight their achievements? I think there's a need to set the record straight. Often these women have been forgotten or overshadowed by more obvious characters, particularly in the case of Tessa and being overshadowed by Mortimer, for example. So it's really important to understand the female contribution to the discipline of archaeology and how it developed and the social impact. And these brilliant characters, you know, these are people who it's fascinating to read about. They obviously had incredibly strong personalities and their contributions were so often uncredited that it makes you wonder how many other women were involved in archaeology and also similarly sort of unknown. I give two examples of this. There was a famous photograph of Gordon Child excavating at Scarabray, I believe in sort of the 1930s or something like that. And there's two women stood to one side and everyone had just assumed that they were just visitors and they were just onlookers. But actually, some people have highlighted recently, one of them is holding a trowel. And these were female excavators who were working on the site. And actually, they'd just stepped out of the way so that Gordon Child could pose 
right. the trench. Um, okay. and, and we now know that these women were Margaret Simpson and Margaret Mitchell, who are both archaeologists and actively working in archaeology in Scotland at that time. So it's very easy for us to assume that the women were not taking part in these projects, and they definitely were. And they, the other example is the story of Peggy Piggott. Many um, listeners might have watched The Dig, the um, Netflix film that was recently about the Sutton Hoo excavations. And they portrayed Peggy there as a relatively young, inexperienced archaeology student who was a bit clumsy. And But actually, she'd directed many of her own digs and had been a massively experienced archaeologist before she went to Sutton Hoo. And so it's really important that we highlight that these women were professionals and were experienced and were driving forward archaeological techniques rather than being, you know, just bystanders to the, the discipline. Yes. And perhaps that's a lesson for future screenplay writers to sort of mm. try and be a bit more faithful to the original history if they can. And also, I think, as you've mentioned before, Susan, Tessa Vernie Wheeler was more in the background than her husband, Sir Mortimer, was because he was the face of their time team, if you know what I mean. She was in the background, wasn't she, doing a lot of the work? Yeah, exactly. So she, she, she might have been in the background in terms of the public view, but she was actually doing the vast majority of the, the actual work. So. so how has the world of archaeology changed for women over the past 50 years or so since the time period that we've been focusing on in this podcast? I think generally we've got to a lot more equality. There are roughly equal numbers, if not more women studying archaeology at university at sort of undergraduate level now. However, I wouldn't say it was all rosy. There is still a massive disparity in the number of female versus male professors teaching archaeology. In 1998, there were only two female professors in the whole of Britain. And actually, by 2007, that was only 9% of lecturers and professors were female. And I think it's improved a bit since then. But to be honest, it's still a minority. So there's certainly a lot of barriers to women becoming leaders in academic archaeology and also in professional archaeology. So in commercial archaeology in the field, many women are forced to leave archaeology because they end up having families and choosing to look after children, which sounds really sexist, but basically archaeology is a job where you're often traveling, you're often being put up in temporary accommodation, it's physical on-site work, and it makes it very difficult for women to stay in field archaeology. And what tends to happen is that women take on roles in post-excavation, in pottery studies, and developing specialisms of their own, which leads to a bit of a kind of imbalance, really, in the discipline. So it's really important for us to address that as a kind of community and to make it much more easy for women to stay in archaeology long term. Yeah, we were talking, Susan, weren't we, about how if you look at museum curators or conservators, there the bias will be often the other way. There'll be a lot more women than there will be men. And that's because those jobs potentially are more regular hours, more stable, you're not moving around. So if you look in different fields of archaeology, museums, heritage, because of the nature of those types of work and the fact that women often do take on the majority of childcare, there's a difference there in yeah who does them and why. And that kind of echoes back, I think, to very early days. You know, in, you often hear in the 19th and early 20th century excavation reports, the men will be leading the excavations and they'll say, oh, and Mrs. Knowles helped with the pottery. And that's often the only mention that they'll get. Mm. Do you think that being a woman makes a difference to them as archaeologists and to women's careers and roles today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's still a, a huge 
I don't know, it, it's difficult to discuss really, isn't it? But um, for me, I'm a prehistorian. I work very much on the Neolithic and early Bronze Age. And I would say I was in a very tiny minority of women who study that period and are actively researching that period. And if you look at the television programmes or some of the publications about research, they are overwhelmingly dominated by men and white, you know, middle-aged men as well. So I certainly feel it in my own career, but both Francis and I, you know, we work for English Heritage. We've both got our doctorates. But I would say that there are many more women in heritage management roles, in interpretation, in, you know, being county archaeologists and having those kind of more curatorial oversight than there is in the kind of world of university research. What do you think, Francis? Yeah, I'd agree. You know, Susan and I are working in our chosen field, which is amazing, but we are often one of the few women if we go to a conference or that sort of thing. And I think we just need to keep working. I'm lucky the university where I did my PhD and kind of my local one, Newcastle University, has got some really amazing female lecturers who I think are inspiring to the students, you know, both male and female. And things are changing a little bit, but, you know, I know lecturers who do chose to change their hours because they want to spend time with their children. And I think it's a wider issue than just in archaeology, isn't it, of um, women's and men's roles. Yes. I think that's why it's kind of important to highlight, as we've just done through this podcast, the work of female archaeologists who have been so active in the discipline and, and look back and see them as role models and, and people who, that there have been women involved in the discipline all the way through its history and, and there should be in the future as well. Would a common denominator between these four women be that they didn't have children? No, Aileen had three children and two stepchildren, actually. Yeah, Maud had a son who grew up to adulthood. I think he got killed in the war. Um, but no, they did have they did have children. And then Tessa and Mortimer had a son as well. Finally then, Susan and Francis, if you had to pick out a few English heritage sites which you'd really recommend people visit and they were discovered or our knowledge about them was improved through the work of groundbreaking female archaeologists, which sites would you pick? I'd probably pick Woodhenge because that was really Maud Cunnington's most famous excavation and it was the one she really, you know, set some really amazing standards. And in fact, if you go to Woodhenge, there's an interpretation panel there with a photograph of Maud Cunnington, because we wanted to tell visitors about her role at the site. And I am going to cheat with my answer and sneak a few sites in and say you should come to Hadrian's Wall because you can come and see the Clayton Collection at Chester's, which Grace Simpson looked after for 20 plus years. And then I'm going to throw another name into the mix, Dorothy Charlesworth who was an inspector of ancient monuments, rare for a woman to be that. And she excavated a lot on Hadrian's Wall. She excavated at Housesteads and excavated at Carabruff Fort and also at some of the turrets along Hadrian's Wall. So despite Hadrian's Wall being, you know, this military structure with mostly men studying it, some women who've been involved have really changed our understanding of it. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're digging again, this time into the history of Hadrian's Wall in the second part of our mini-series. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time.